0: the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Uh, Through the summer, we've been in a series called How Jacob Became Israel, and we've been seeing how God can minister in the messes of our lives. Uh, If you're tuning in for the first time this morning, we're glad you're here. Uh, Leave a note in the comment section below to let us know you dropped by. Now, 15 and Pregnant is a movie from the late 90s starring Kirsten Dunst as Tina. She's a high school girl who's become pregnant. She and her mother try to talk about what happened. And at one point, Tina says, I wanted to know what love is. Her mother responds. All I can say is, I'm so sorry you couldn't feel our love for you. To which Tina answers, I thought I wanted to feel loved by Ray. Everybody thinks it's bad for me to have a baby, but at least I'll have someone to love who love me back. Now, while the conversation is trying to show a mother and daughter trying to bond over a difficult situation, you can't help but feel their sadness. The mother is disappointed that her love for her daughter wasn't enough. The daughter is disappointed that her boyfriend didn't have enough love for her. And the ironic thing is that the daughter feels that what's going to solve things is having a baby who will fill her own need for love. But almost certainly it won't. And yet, this is the human experience. I don't think you need to be a teenager to relate to Tina. The fact is, we spend a big part of our lives trying to fill what seems to be lacking in our own hearts. We feel an ache for something more. And in trying to heal that ache, we end up using the people around us as a means to an end, treating them like products to satisfy us. That's what dating can often be, right? That's what a lot of business networking is. It's what pornography is. Even some friendships could fall into this category. Using people to fill what's missing in our own hearts. Now this morning I want to look at three people who are all trying to get something to fill the hole they feel in their lives. And they teach us something about ourselves. But they also teach us about the God who loves us and who alone can satisfy. If you don't have your Bible, I'd encourage you to pause the video at this point and to get one. And then turn with me to Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. Uh, I'll read uh, first starting in 29 down all the way to verse 35. Genesis 29, 31 to 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I'll praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Well, this is the word of God. Now, anybody thinking, boy, the book of Genesis sure does have a lot of stories about (laughs) births. Well, that's because... Genesis 3.15 promised that a child born to a woman would crush the serpent, and God had promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so, seeing how God will fulfill those two promises is a big part of what Genesis is all about. Now, as the story opens, we meet Leah. We saw last time that Leah is the less attractive older sister of Rachel, She's the one whose father feared for her marital prospects so much that he tricked Jacob into marrying her. And then he negotiated a double deal whereby Jacob could marry both sisters. And we're not surprised to learn how that worked out. Verse 31 says that Leah was hated. Verse 32 speaks of her affliction. She feels the pain of a loveless marriage. And her sister, far from being there to support her, just makes her life even more miserable. But while her husband doesn't love her, her father was eager to get rid of her, and her sister sees her only as a rival, there is someone in this passage who has eyes for her. Verse 31 says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. See, God sees her crying herself to sleep at night. He notices the ache in her heart and he has compassion on her. And so he enables her to conceive. And Leah can see that this is the Lord's hand in her birth. So when her firstborn, Reuben, is born, she says, The Lord has looked upon my affliction. When her secondborn, Simeon, is born, she says, The Lord has heard that I am hated. But instead of learning to rest in the Lord's love for her, she tries to use her body and her babies to try and win her husband's affection. She names her firstborn Reuben, which sounds like the Hebrew word for, look, a son. And while it recognizes that the Lord has seen her, it's also a cry for her husband. Notice me, look what I've done. She desperately wants Jacob to see how valuable she is, because she's given him an heir, while Rachel, his favorite, is childless. Not surprisingly, it doesn't work. Then she bears a second son, still no change in Jacob. Her third son she names Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attach. (laughs) And she says in verse 34, this time my husband will be attached to me. But of course, another baby boy doesn't attach her husband to her. She's given birth to the perfect trilogy of sons, but she hasn't earned the affection of the man that she wants. But what we learn here is sometimes not getting what we want is just what we need. What would Leah have learned from winning the affection of her husband by making babies? She would learn, my life has value as long as I can keep having children. She would learn that in order to get ahead, she'd have to keep her sister back. And she might learn that what really gives life meaning is the love of a man whose love seems to come and go based on what he can get from you. And those would all be terrible lessons. And yet, it's often not until we don't get what we want that we realize that we've been seeking the wrong thing. Leah was looking for love in all the wrong places. Now I'm convinced that as Leah was denied the love of her husband, Jacob, she slowly learned to find her satisfaction in the love of God because she had seen it. But she remembered how God had loved her when her husband had ignored her. She remembered how God had given her children when her husband had given her nothing. She remembered how God had seen her affliction when her husband never seemed to see anything she was going through. And so when her fourth born son, when he was born, she says in verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord. And she named him Judah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. With Judah, there's no talk of trying to change your husband anymore no hoping that she can win him over with another son she's come to experience the love of god and realizes for perhaps the first time that it's god's perfect love for her that her heart had been yearning for so desperately she says this time i'll praise the lord this time i'll look to the one who always notices me this time i'll speak to the one who always hears me this time I'll value the opinion of the one who always values me. With Judah, Leah had begun to rest in the love of God. And I believe this may very well have been her conversion. But it didn't mean that she never felt the ache for her husband's love again. It didn't mean that she never resorted to competition to try to win his affection again. Because in fact, she did. When Rachel had two sons by her servant and announced in verse 8 of the next chapter, I wrestled with my sister and prevailed, Leah couldn't help herself. She gave her servant to Jacob and bore two sons by her. And later, when she herself gave birth to two more baby boys, she said, Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. But of course he didn't. And it's an honest reminder that learning to rest in the love of God requires some struggle. But Leah had a taste of the satisfaction of God's love, and her life would never be the same. Now, maybe some of you see yourself in Leah. You're doing backflips to get noticed by someone who may never notice you. Or you're convinced that if only your body was toned enough, or your bank account was big enough, or your personality charming enough... Then you would win over that person's love, and then your life would be complete. But it seldom works that way. And when we head down that path, we often end up in a place of regret, the way that Tina did. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not trying to find your satisfaction in a person's love. Maybe for you, you're more about status. Maybe you're counting on another award or another promotion or another salary increase to satisfy you. And if so, you may relate to Leah's younger sister, Rachel. See, Rachel was always the pretty one. It wasn't a big surprise that Jacob had fallen in love with her. She didn't know Leah's pain. She'd never suffered for lack of attention from other guys. But none of that seemed to matter because she couldn't have children and children were women's status symbols in the ancient world. We're introduced to her world in Genesis 30 verses one to four. When, uh, if if you have your Bibles again, just want to encourage you to follow along as I read Genesis 30 verses one to four. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob, no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her that, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. Now, having spent so long considering everything that Leah did to try to win the approval of her husband, we're left with the impression, boy, this Jacob must have really been a catch. But his love doesn't seem to do a thing for Rachel. Even though she's got what Leah wants, Rachel's the one who's overcome with envy. And when she doesn't get what she wants, she'll make life unbearable for the people around her. In verse 1, she threatens Jacob with suicide. Give me children or I shall die. And you realize that her husband is really just a means to an end for her. She wants to use him to get children and use the children to get more prestige for herself. When he doesn't prove useful in helping her get what she wants, she turns to her servant Bilha. Now, having children by your servant was an extreme form of surrogacy and it was common in the ancient Near East. But the Bible warns again and again that it creates more problems than it solves. Rachel finally succeeds in having two children by her servant. But in the process, she makes it clear that her husband, her servant, and even the babies that are born through the arrangement are all just being used by Rachel to help her get the honor she feels she deserves. Her family members, They're just props to communicate how successful her life is. The children that come through Bilhah don't fill the void that Rachel had been feeling. So when she learns that Leah's son Reuben has some, he's found some mandrake plants, she demands that she have some. Because of the shape of the mandrakes, there was a superstition about the powers of fertility and Rachel is determined to get them. At this point, her envy of Leah was so extreme she'd actually forbidden her from sleeping with Jacob. But in order to get Reuben's mandrakes, she's willing to rent her husband out to her. We come down to verse 15. And we we hear her her announce that he may lie with with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. It's just obscene to think how she's treating the people in her life. Trading her husband off for an aphrodisiac. Treating her sister like a customer. Rachel's making her life more and more miserable and is intent on dragging the other people down with her. Her life reminds us of the commentary that's given in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. That's where it says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's saying that if you build your life around getting what other people have, you build a life of meaninglessness. You end up chasing after something that can never be caught. Uh, Paul warned of the same thing in 2 Corinthians 10.12. That's where he writes, When they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, there, without understanding. He's saying if you try to fill the void in your life by trying to get more approval or more recognition or more stuff, it only ends up leaving you feel more empty. But you end up using the people around you in the process. Now, like with Leah who has denied her search for love in the wrong places, God did the most gracious thing he could to Rachel. He frustrated her attempts to find her satisfaction in her status. Her husband couldn't help her. The children that she had by her servant did little to satisfy her. And the Mandrake fiasco, that completely backfired. Not only did it not help her have a baby, but the exchange led to her rival Leah having two more sons and a daughter. But sometimes not getting what we want is just what we need. Rachel needed to be taught to be content with all that she had. She needed to learn that envy and comparison wouldn't help. She needed to see that if help was going to come, it wouldn't come through her husband or her servant or any of her superstitious schemes. It would only come through the Lord. Now, after God gave her time to let these lessons sink in, he intervened in mercy. Follow along as I read the conclusion of this passage, how it ends in Genesis 30, verses 22 to 24. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Rachel has finally learned to rely on the love of God sort of. See, God intervenes to provide her with a child. And Rachel has been through enough to acknowledge this is his doing. When she says in verse 23, God has taken away my approach, she recognizes that God came to her aid. But again, the name she gives her son reveals her heart. She calls him Joseph, which sounds something like, can I have another? <laughs> How'd you like to be the child who wasn't enough? Greed greed is an ugly thing. And trying to find your satisfaction and status makes you chew up the people around you because it's never enough. Only the love of God can truly satisfy us. Now, you may have thought that I was only gonna pick on the women in this story. But even though Jacob is just a minor character in the struggle of his two wives, he teaches us something important. Because maybe you're not seeking your satisfaction in people or status. Maybe you're seeking your satisfaction in comfort. Maybe your thing is peace, quiet, and everyone just being happy. That was Jacob. In verse 1, when Rachel gave her, the, gave, uh, her ultimatum, give me children or I shall die, Jacob was furious. It says in the next verse, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now, of course, his statement is true in one sense. He wasn't God. He didn't have power over conception. But while he wasn't God, he was Rachel's husband. He could show compassion. (laughs) He could be a better listener. But more importantly, he could show spiritual leadership. He knew better than to just sit by passively, because his own mother had struggled with childlessness for a long 20 years. But Rebecca was spared a lot of that pain. She was spared a lot of the pain because she had a husband who kept taking the matter before the Lord in prayer. He felt her problems as his own. In Genesis 25, verse 21 says, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. There's never any mention of that with Jacob. He doesn't pray for his wife. He just gets angry that she's asking him to do something about her pain. He just wants peace. He doesn't want to have to deal with problems. He doesn't want to deal with the fact that his own favoritism is call it, causing all of Leah's problems. He's eager that she fulfills her role as a mother. Is it too much to ask that he work at showing her love and kindness? Can he not see how much pain he's causing her? And with Rachel, not only does he not pray for her, but there never seems to be any direction. He just passively goes along with all of her terrible plans. Who do you want me to sleep with tonight? Bilha? Huh? Okay. Leah? All right. What are these mandrakes doing in our bedroom anyway? You know what? I don't think he even noticed them because he didn't seem to notice anything that was happening in his own home. He was only concerned with his own comfort. But there's no satisfaction and comfort outside of the love of God. So don't be a bystander in your own home. Don't be a passive husband like Jacob. Pray for your wife. Take responsibility for the messes you make. Listen to what's going on and do something about it. Don't just put your feet up on the sofa and get angry when someone disturbs your rest. But that brings us full circle. Because you can't just not find your satisfaction in comfort or status or people for the exact same reason that Tina couldn't just say no to Ray. You have to learn to find your satisfaction somewhere else. You have to learn to say with Leah, this time I'll praise the Lord. This time, I'll find my satisfaction in him. This time, I'll pin my hopes on the one who is faithful to me. This passage gives us the births of 11 sons and one daughter. But can you guess which one the Messiah came through? It's only fitting that he came through Judah. The Savior came through the unloved wife and the child... At whose birth she finally learned to say this time i'll praise the lord jesus came through the line of judah and for all of us like tina who are thinking i want to know what love is like jesus is the answer god doesn't always show us his love by giving us the love of the person that we want he doesn't show his love to us primarily by giving us more babies or more status or more stuff He doesn't even show his love to us mainly by making our lives more comfortable. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross shows us the love of God. And it's only as we stare down our painful circumstances and say, this time I'll praise the Lord and learn to rest in the love of a God that sent his only son to die for me. It's only then that we experience the love of God in Jesus Christ is alone what can satisfy us. It's that love that sustains us and fuels us and carries us through the difficult times. Let's look to this God of love and prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown us perfect love. You're the one who provides what we most need, even if that's not what we most want. Thank you for withholding some of the things that we chase after. Because in doing so, you teach us that it is in you that we find our ultimate rest. It's in you that we find our satisfaction. And it's in your love that love that you showed at the cross where Jesus died for our sins. It's there that we come to experience that thing that fills us. And we realize that that thing that we most desperately need is you. Lead us, Father, to say with Leah, this time, I'll praise the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I hope that today's message has helped you look to the love of God and find your satisfaction in Him. And if it's raised some questions in your mind, or if there's some areas that you'd like prayer, send me an email or leave a comment below. And if there's someone you know who would be encouraged by this message, share it with them and point them to the hope of the God who loves us. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless